0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamud and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. That is a very, very robust, vigorous Achu sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie.
1: Sunday morning, May 3rd. A good Sunday morning, everyone, and welcome into your radio, Doctor, exclusively provided and presented by Independence Blue Cross. We thank everyone for being here on Sunday. We are live, we are local, and we introduce you to the host of the show, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Doc, all yours.
2: Thank you so much, Joe, and good morning to you and good morning to our listeners Treatment for COVID-19 is desperately needed to decrease the impact of the disease on those who are infected, but also to control or mitigate the spread until we have a vaccine. Here to speak about the ongoing clinical trials at the University of Pennsylvania is Dr. Ian Frank, Professor of Medicine and Professor of Psychiatry at Penn, also Director of the Clinical Core, Penn Center for AIDS Research Center, and the Director of Antiretroviral Clinical Research. Welcome, Dr. Ian Frank, and thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you, Marianne. My pleasure to be with you this morning.
2: Well, at the onset of COVID 19, it appeared to be mostly a respiratory illness. But now that we see it takes on so many different faces, it'd be good to start our segment today by reviewing the various symptoms and different ways it can present.
0: Well, this is a fascinating disease, and it has an incredibly broad spectrum of presentation and illness. So we know that um, at least half of the people who get exposed to SARS-CoV-2 will get infected and have absolutely no symptoms. We know that from studies that have been done uh, using contact tracing, close contacts, family members, individuals who are living with folks who are diagnosed, uh, who are then followed closely, have nasopharyngeal swabs, trying to detect viral nucleic acid. Uh, and in studies that we've seen so far from China, about half of the people uh, who are diagnosed with a positive swab will have no symptoms. For those individuals who have symptoms, probably 80% of those have a relatively mild respiratory illness. They'll have fevers, they'll have cough, myalgias, sometimes GI symptoms, nausea, diarrhea are common. Uh, And these individuals will do fine. They'll be sick for a few days and then they'll get better. About 20% of people will ultimately be hospitalized. These folks experience a progressive lung infection, and initially their symptoms are mostly mild respiratory symptoms, the cough that persists, the fever that persists, then they will all of a sudden get sick. And it seems that these individuals are developing a progressive hypoxemia, so their their oxygen levels are low, but they're not aware of that. And, And the reason for that if, if you remember your, your pulmonary physiology is that increases in CO2 is what drives our respiratory rate. And folks with COVID-19 pneumonia have in some regards, um, a, a, a more milder kind of, uh, lung pathology initially where their lungs remain flexible, and they're not retaining CO2. However, people reach a tipping point, and all of a sudden, they're really short of breath. So they come to the hospital, and a lot of individuals then will, will respond to just oxygen therapy alone. Some will have progressive lung infection, and these individuals will go on to, in some cases, uh, develop adult respiratory distress syndrome, ARDS. They'll need to be transferred to the intensive care unit. Uh, they'll need more aggressive oxygen therapy. Some people will need to be intubated. And uh, and some people have such severe problems being appropriately oxygenated that they need ECMO uh, in order to remove the blood, you know, from their body, oxygenated and re-deliver it. Now, that's the respiratory illness. What we are appreciating is that a significant proportion of individuals who develop seer- severe symptoms, and even some people who, develop, who have a mild illness, they will experience uh, hypercoagulability. Their blood will clot more easily than is normally the case. And we're seeing individuals with pulmonary emboli. We're we're seeing individuals who have stroke. uh, And this is one of the major causes of morbidity and mortality in people who are developing COVID-19 disease. I see.
2: Well, and you know, I think that we are learning so much as we go along. It's new. That's why it's called the novel coronavirus. And some of the more atypical features might be what we thought were atypical: loss of sense of smell, loss of sense of taste. And but some people can have just a severe headache or a sore throat. And some people don't even mount a fever. I think that's fascinating in itself.
0: Well, you're absolutely right. I'm I'm glad you you reminded me of, about the loss of smell because that's pretty common. Um, mm-hmm. In a in number of the healthcare workers that we've seen uh, and diagnosed, they've had very atypical uh, types of symptoms. And right. we've, we've, we've diagnosed them because they've had significant contacts uh, and came in for testing because of these asymptomatic or, or, or unusual types of, of symptoms. Uh, and I think that when all is said and done, we're going to appreciate that a lot more people have got infected than what is revealed by the nasopharyngeal tests. There are serologic tests that are being developed so we'll be able to look to see if people have made antibodies uh, to SARS-CoV-2 and we'll see what proportion of individuals end up uh, having a positive test after having close contact with somebody with an illness.
2: Well, I think too, Ian, we know the virus can cause damage to cells, any virus can. But what's also uh, fascinating isn't the right word. Seeing people suffer is not fascinating. But as scientists, we also see that the immune system is then triggered to mount a response. And that's leading to this severe inflammation. So if there's inflammation in the lungs or the GI tract, we say, okay, there are the symptoms. But if the arteries and veins are inflamed, that leads to the clotting. And we're seeing strokes in 30 to 40-year-olds. And that's the presenting symptom or sign. Uh, we're seeing arrhythmias, uh, heart attacks. Uh, some people are even developing weak heart muscles uh, for the listeners called cardiomyopathy. So it makes sense when we add the element of the severe inflammation. But I think the other couple things while we have a few minutes are the atypical symptoms in the elderly and in small children. Um, I read a great article that summarized some of the Um, Atypical symptoms in the elderly, they might just be off or disoriented because you're an infectious disease specialist. We know that the immune response in the elderly may be lesser, may be blunted to a degree, and the elderly often can't regulate their temperature as a younger person. So they might not have a fever. And if they've had a stroke or some neurologic condition, they might not be able to cough. So you notice that they might be a little disoriented. They stop eating, Um, What have you seen with elderly patients?
0: Well, I think COVID-19 causes the kind of uh, worsening of underlying medical conditions that we often see in in elderly individuals. So individuals who have some degree of mental status changes may just present with worsening mental status. Mm -hmm. Um, Individuals who have some underlying heart condition may present with worsening heart failure. Uh, I saw one patient who's got bad rheumatoid arthritis, uh, and the muscle aches that she was experiencing were was, were worsening her arthritis, uh, and so she couldn't stand up. She didn't have much in the way of respiratory symptoms. Um, right. So I, I think we're all, uh, those of us who take care of older individuals are used to this kind of experience uh, where we see some underlying medical condition, uh, often presenting uh, in, in unusual ways for that underlying medical condition, but worsening uh, uh, chronic uh, problems that these individuals have.
2: Yes. When we come back, more on some of the unusual presentations, and then we'll hear about the great research that's going on at Penn. Thank you, Ian.
1: This is your Radio Doctor as we broadcast you live on this Sunday morning here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, your Radio Doctor, exclusive exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Back in a moment. And welcome back, everyone, on a Sunday morning. It is your Radio Doctor, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. Dr. Ian Frank is the special guest for the full hour of the show today. Doc, it's all yours.
2: And Thank you, Joe. Ian, thank you once again. I wanted to summarize a few of the atypical um, patterns that we know with COVID. The big uh, item in the news in the past week or so is COVID toe. People are seeing uh, painful red and purple lesions on their fingers, and toes. And we usually call them chill That's what dermatologists would call them, usually in the dead of winter when it's cold and wet. And inflammation of tiny blood vessels causes these changes. We're seeing them, which can be the only sign of COVID. So for our listeners, if you see that, get tested. And we're also seeing uh, in China, there was a disproportionately higher number of deaths in males than females. Um, and in Italy and maybe in the U.S., And then the African-American community has a disproportionately high number of cases and deaths, which uh, we have to see if that pattern continues and if it's from socioeconomic disparities or other health conditions. But I think people need to be aware of certain things, say, with children. Children can also have uh, unusual presentations with just fever. The case in The Lancet, I guess you saw that Uh, just on April 27, where in Paris, they had a number of infants and they had respiratory symptoms. They isolated them and were tested. Five babies in particular were positive for COVID and had only fever. Uh, They had neurologic changes like lethargy, or they may have been dystonic. But really, um, for listeners, if you see something acute, know to question it. So let's hear about the the great research that's going on at Penn, and tell us about that.
0: Well, so uh, you know, Penn is uh, uh, has a mission that uh, not only includes patient care but includes research, uh, and I'm sure all of the listeners understand that uh, we don't really know how to treat this disease. Uh, There are no vaccines that have been developed for other kinds of coronavirus infections and epidemics that we have experienced. The the SARS epidemic in 2003 or the MERS epidemic that we've seen a little bit more recently. Uh, There are no antivirals that have been uh, proven to be effective uh, in animal model systems against uh, SARS-CoV-2. So, uh, one of the major disadvantages that we have here is uh, a total absence of, of knowledge uh, with respect to uh, therapeutic options. So um, we have, we're participating in a, in a number of studies, some being supported by the national institutes of health, some being developed by investigators at Penn, uh, some being sponsored by industry. Uh, and maybe we should talk first about the remdesivir uh, studies that we've been doing because there was just some hopeful news about remdesivir as being effective to treat people with COVID-19 this week. So uh, the story that's been in the news is a, is a trial uh, that was sponsored by the National Institute of Health. It's called ACTT. It stands for Adaptive uh, COVID-19 Treatment Trial. Um, and it's a study that started with a comparison of remdesivir versus a placebo. Um, and the study enrolled over a thousand individuals uh, and was able to demonstrate that giving remdesivir shortened the time of hospitalization of patients with severe disease. And that's defined as requiring supplemental oxygen with pneumonia. Uh, and included individuals who were in intensive care units on ventilators. So the the people who received the treatment had a reduction in time of hospitalization from 15 days to 11 days, and a decrease in mortality from 11.6% to 8%. The reduction in mortality was not statistically significant, but the p-value was 0.059, so a very strong trend. Towards statistical significance, and the difference in hospitalization length was highly statistically significant. Initially, we thought that an antiviral would be most effective in modifying disease in individuals whose symptoms were relatively mild. But actually, in this study, the reduction of four days of hospitalization occurred because the drug was effective in individuals with who were. Uh, more serious on the clinical illness spectrum. Uh, So there's still a lot we need to learn from that trial. We have not seen anything more than these highlights of the results. We haven't seen any of the results in detail. I'm sure we'll be seeing them soon. Uh, But we, we now have one drug that we know is helpful for some individuals.
2: Yes. And for our listening audience, Remdesivir is a drug that had been developed in hope of treating Ebola virus and it wasn't so successful, but we do know a little bit about that from the past. Um, And the way it works is it inhibits the virus from duplicating, or we say replicating, um, and uh, causing systemic problems. So there is a glimmer of hope with remdesivir. Um, Ian, again, we talk about different medicines on the air and people are familiar with hydroxychloroquine from hearing so much about it. It's good, it's not good. But I think what people need to understand, we'll talk about that now, hydroxychloroquine has been used as an uh, anti-malarial prophylactic or you're going on a trip, we're giving it to a healthy person. And it does have a slight risk of causing abnormal heart rhythms. But we're talking about giving it to sick people. And remember, we said the virus can damage organs, but inflammation from the immune response. So if we're giving somebody who's had um, inflammation in the vessels that feed the heart or inflammation in the heart itself, a drug with other heart risks, that's why we have to study it um, in the context of the hospital, do an EKG first, monitor the patient. But that doesn't mean there's no hope with it. It means we have to really examine it in uh, a very closely monitored setting?
0: Well, you know, a lot of people, uh, a lot of people, I I mean, uh, providers were prescribing hydroxychloroquine because it is an FDA approved indication. Uh, And we use it not only for malaria prevention, but uh, it's used to treat people with certain type of uh, arthritis. Uh, it's, It's used as a cancer chemotherapy. We have a lot of experience with the drug. Um, It can affect uh, the QTC interval on an EKG, so it it, it can have uh, some electrical disturbances associated with it. Uh, And I want to just go back to one of the points you made earlier uh, about, uh, you know, why some people may be at increased risk for more severe disease. Hypertension uh, is an illness that is associated with a worse outcome. Um, And so people who have a history of hypertension uh, are probably more likely to have some underlying cardiac disease, uh, and they may be more likely to have arrhythmias from this drug. So there are reasons to actually do studies uh, rather than just give uh, a medication to uh, to people, obviously, in desperate times when there is no uh, proven therapy. Uh, providers are going to want to do anything they can that they think may be beneficial. Um, we are doing a couple of uh, hydroxyurea, uh, um, of hydrox- I'm sorry, hydroxychloroquine trials. Um, um, uh, uh, they're being uh, led by uh, uh, an oncologist at Penn named Ravi Amaravati. Uh, and we actually have three studies that are going on. One is to treat mild disease Uh, in people who can be treated at home, who don't need to be hospitalized. Uh, And this is important because uh, hydroxychloroquine is thought to work as an antiviral agent, as one of its mechanisms of action. And if the drug can decrease the period of virus shedding, uh, then that individual will be infectious for a shorter period of time, uh, and that strategy will be effective in controlling the spread of disease. So even if they don't have a clinical benefit by, uh, let's say, decreasing the duration of fever, um, by just reducing the amount of viral shedding, that's an important public health benefit. So that's one study. A second study is treating people who are hospitalized. uh, And then in a third study, we are testing its ability to prevent infection among healthcare workers. Healthcare workers have among the highest rates of acquisition of COVID-19 disease. I'm sure everybody has seen stories in the newspaper about sick healthcare providers in Italy or New York City. uh, And uh, we're investigating its potential to see if it can work as a preventative as well as a therapeutic.
2: And that's so important because we're dealing with short staffing to begin with and the intensity of the symptoms and keeping people from working. Um, And that combined with testing to see who's already been exposed, because that's the other uphill climb here. Our testing, um, there are so many asymptomatic people. And and again, very briefly, the testing itself, we know that the nasopharyngeal swabs, when they're taken properly, they're falsely negative or reassuringly negative uh, at least 30% of the time. And then with the rapid, and we say, do it yourself, people put the swab in just the tip of their nose, some of those samples aren't even as good. So um, as we said earlier, serologic or blood testing to look for antibodies will be helpful, and that is to be developed as well. We'll be back in a moment with Dr. Ian Frank from the University of Pennsylvania.
1: Thanks so much for listening to Your Radio Doctor as we broadcast you live here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, Your Radio Doctor, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you miss any of today's live show, uh, you'll find it at YourRadioDoctor.com or just go to radio.com and search Your Radio Doctor. Back in a moment. And welcome back everyone to your Radio Doctor, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross as we join you live here on Talk Radio 1210, WPHT. Merit's all yours.
2: Thank you, Joe. We're here with Dr. Ian Frank talking about the research trials at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Ian, I think what people are hoping to get progress with is convalescent plasma. And for our listeners, plasma is that portion of the blood that after the white cells, red cells are removed, it's that, would you say, in the straw-colored fluid, and its value is that it carries the antibodies or the soldiers of our immune system that fight off bacteria and viruses. Tell us a little bit about what's happening with, and convalescent means it's from people who are convalescing or recovering from a particular illness in this case, COVID.
0: So, Marianne, you mentioned earlier that remdesivir was initially tested uh, to treat Ebola, but didn't work so well. Uh, and it did have some activity against Ebola, but in comparison to convalescent plasma, uh, it didn't do as well as the plasma. So, we we know that giving people plasma, as you mentioned, has the antibodies and other factors um, that may have antiviral properties. We know that's an effective strategy to treat uh, viral diseases. We've used it uh, to treat hepatitis before there were antivirals available to treat hepatitis or prevent individuals from acquiring hepatitis or other infectious diseases. Um, So, before we knew that remdesivir was active, people were trying to come up with a strategy uh, to have some antiviral effect against this illness, uh, and people logically uh, look towards convalescent plasma uh, to, to work in that kind of context. So at Penn, we've been collecting plasma from individuals who've recovered from disease, uh, and just this... Uh, weekend, we're we're starting to uh, provide it uh, as therapy uh, in some individuals. We're first starting in the intensive care unit, uh, and then we're going to do a study uh, in people who are hospitalized on just a floor bed. Um, there are some anecdotal cases in the literature that suggest that it may be helpful for some individuals. Uh, there are some reports that in people with the most severe disease people who've already been sick for a while, uh, the drug or the or the therapy may not be effective, um, and that may not that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, individuals who've been hospitalized for a couple of weeks, many of those individuals will make an immune response against the virus, and if they have a good antibody response against the virus, they may not benefit from receiving antibodies in the form of plasma therapy. Now, p- plasma may work in other ways other than the benefit of uh, giving the antibody, but we need more data to really understand who's going to benefit and how many, what proportion of individuals will benefit. I should also say there's a potential risk um, because individuals who get plasma also get factors that are associated or that, that promote clotting. And if this is a disease that's associated with an increased risk of clots, then there may be a downside to, to giving plasma. And that's one of the reasons why it really needs to be studied with controlled trials so we can make sure that we're not harming individuals uh, along the way.
2: Thank you. That was a very clear, logical explanation. As you say, if somebody's already mounted their own immune response and it's just not enough... Maybe that's why an infusion of plasma wouldn't make a big change in their clinical picture. And then I wondered myself, what are the downsides? What other factors might, not just clotting factors, are there any other risks to um, infusing plasma? That makes so much more sense. So the plasma studies at Penn are uh, ongoing for different stages of the illness.
0: Yes, that's, that's right.
2: And I, I wanna revert back to something I mentioned to say when we we're talking about remdesivir, which is an antiviral, um, that just like influenza, Tamiflu, if, if you, for our listeners, you need to take that within the first 48 hours before the flu gallops. So I guess that's the important part about trials. All these clinical studies are looking at people in different stages. And some of these therapies may help at a certain point and not at a different point. So, Ian, uh, tell me about REPLACE, the study called REPLACE.
0: So REPLACE is a study that's focusing on individuals who have hypertension uh, and are on uh, uh, the classes of drugs that we know as ACE inhibitors or ARBs. And the v- receptor for SARS-CoV-2 is a molecule called ACE2. So it's it's in that angiotensin-converting enzyme family of molecules. And individuals who are on ACE inhibitors have higher levels of ACE2 uh, in, on their tissues. Uh, and so one of the reasons why people with hypertension may be more likely to have more severe disease uh, is because they have more ACE2 on lung tissue that is enabling the virus to bind more diffusely and perhaps cause a worsening pneumonia. Now, there's a paradox here because with other viral diseases like influenza, individuals who have higher levels of ACE2 in their lung, they are protected from lung injury. So ACE2 may have a beneficial effect as well as a harmful effect. Uh, and for that reason, we're doing a study at Penn to see whether or not people who are on these classes of antihypertensives should continue them or stop them. Uh, and actually, there's another group that is developing an uh, ACE2 treatment to try to increase ACE2 levels in the lung uh, and and serve as a... A kind of protective effect against other lung injury. That study uh, is uh, is not uh, close to starting uh, yet, but uh, there are a number of groups that are trying to work uh, along th- this kind of mechanistic pathway uh, to see if we can uh, lessen the course of severity in individuals with the disease.
2: So, for our listeners. There are so many ways to approach this. We can either try to stop the virus from replicating or reproducing, or we can get in the way of the virus. In this case, when the virus decides to attack a cell in the lung or a cell in the GI tract, those spikes, remember corona means crown. It's the Latin word for crown because when we look under the microscope, the virus has all these little spikes that make it look like a crown. And those spikes, when they get to a cell, they want to just think of the the lunar module (laughs) landing and it has to anchor itself. So the spikes anchor onto a receptor on the cells called ACE, ACE2 for brevity. So as you're saying, Ian, then when somebody's on an ACE inhibitor, uh, it raises levels of ACE in the bloodstream. So there was a question whether people on these drugs, ACE inhibitors... Or angiotensin receptor blockers (ARBs) should stop those medicines in case it would increase their risk. But we're nationally, patients are being told do not stop those medicines. Talk to your physician. I think that's an important point about this.
0: Yes, I, I don't think people should be stopping their antihypertensives now or or, or changing them. Um, so I, you know, I, I think that this is not going to be have a major impact on the outcome of disease, uh, but in some individuals with severe illness, keeping people out of the intensive care unit and keeping people off ventilators uh, would be an essential strategy, a really important strategy. So uh, I think that it will only be for a minor group of uh, individuals where uh, this kind of strategy is going to be important. And, and tell me, um,
2: what has been the most fascinating thing that you have seen so far? It's so early in the disease and collecting data and observing people and different presentations. What has been the most fascinating thing to you, Ian, so far?
0: Well, I think it's it's trying to understand the reason why people are developing these clots and and these pulmonary emboli and these strokes. Um, You mentioned earlier that this is perhaps not just a viral disease, but also an immunologic disease, and I think that that's really true. Early on, the virus is responsible for the pneumonia, but what causes worsening may not just be virus replication. It may be how the immune response two-virus replication is altering the normal physiology uh, in the lungs, but also in blood vessels. Uh, th- those COVID-19 toes, that is, as you mentioned, a vasculitis. Uh, and we're probably seeing a lot of disease that's caused by the immune system uh, reacting in a, in overdrive against the virus rather than virus replication going on. So one of the interesting research aspects is trying to figure out how and at what point in time should we be trying to dampen the immune response to let the lungs heal without all of these secondary um, insults to the lung function and to blood vessels, which are probably making it harder for us to to ventilate patients who are in the intensive care unit.
2: So what you're saying is we have to uh, look at ways to stop the virus either by stopping it from reproducing, getting in the way of it attaching, or telling our immune systems to slow down a little bit. We'll be back in just a minute to hear about work on a vaccine
1: one more segment to go here on your radio doctor exclusively presented by independence blue cross also coming up in the final segment your real champion this week's edition back in a moment exclusively presented by independence blue cross welcome back everyone to your radio doctor on behalf of our host dr marianne Ritchie, and our special guest for the full hour today dr ian frank thanks everyone for listening to the full show, Mayor, it's all yours.
2: Thank you, Joe. We're back with Dr. Ian Frank in the magic question. What about a vaccine? And I, I want to say, Philadelphia and really beyond, are very fortunate to have you at the helm here because of your have devoted so much of your career to HIV and AIDS research and antiretroviral uh, research as well. Tell us a little bit what we know so far about the vaccine and your research.
0: Well, Marianne, thanks for those kind words. Uh, I'm I'm just a cog in a big wheel here, Uh, but but let me say something about vaccines because the way we're going to get out of this epidemic is is going to happen in one of two ways. Either there's going to be a lot of people who are going to get this infection, and there's going to be a lot of deaths, unfortunately, or We're going to develop an effective vaccine, uh, and we're going to prevent infection in individuals who who haven't been exposed. And I'm hoping it's the latter. So there are now 80, I believe, different vaccines that are being developed uh, against COVID-19. We are studying one of the first to enter clinical trials. It's a DNA vaccine uh, being developed by a company called Inovio. Uh, The first phase in these studies, it's a similar kind of strategy in all of these vaccine studies, not just the one uh, that we're participating in. The first phase is to see if these vaccines are safe and to see the type of immune response that individuals develop, Uh, what proportion of individuals develop antibodies, how effective are those antibodies to neutralize virus? Uh, and what regions of the virus do these antibodies bind to. We do not yet know that individuals who have been exposed to the virus and recovered, we don't know that those individuals are protected from another infection if they get exposed a second time. That's also a critical question here. Uh, And if natural infection does not prevent individuals from getting infected again, or at least lessen the severity of illness, Mm -hmm. then there there wouldn't be a lot of hope that the vaccine would be effective. But I suspect uh, that individuals who've been exposed will not have a serious illness a second time, uh, or any symptoms. And I think we will have an effective vaccine. There are going to be large prevention vaccine studies that are going to start this summer. Uh, so we may have uh, uh, some information about the effectiveness of the vaccine before the end of the year.
2: Well, and I think, too, time will tell if there may be more than one type of vaccine. We know now that there are different types of vaccines for flu. Older people get would you say a stronger dose, and and the other idea is that patients may need two doses several weeks apart.
0: Well, vaccines. Sometimes you you need uh, multiple vaccines in order to develop an effective immune response. With many of the vaccines that we give, childhood vaccines or hepatitis, we give multiple vaccines uh, over the uh, course of uh, a month or six months, uh, and sometimes you need a booster in order to have a high enough level of uh, immune response to be effective. Um, sure. uh, and, we, and we may need several different types of uh, vaccines that are targeting different uh, 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 proteins on the virus or, or epitopes on the virus uh, in order to develop the most effective response. Yes. So we are really just at the very beginning here. The first vaccine that we have approved Uh, for COVID-19 would probably not be the last one that we have approved. Uh, So I'm sure over time, we're going to work to try to uh, improve the effectiveness of any vaccine that we develop.
2: And the most precious commodity is time. We thank you, Dr. Ian Frank from the University of Pennsylvania. You've given us a lot of hope knowing that so many good and smart people are working so hard to help with this pandemic. Thank you, Ian. Stay well.
0: Thanks for having me on my uh, on your show and uh, I wish the best uh, to uh, all your listeners.
2: Thank you so much. And now for our listeners, this week's your real champions. Friends, each of us is anxious about the coronavirus in some way. Even if you can work from home, you worry about your family and friends who are exposed or already ill. Now think about the worry if you're a police officer. You get an emergency call you may have to run to a fiery car crash, maybe enter a home after domestic abuse, or pull over a speeding car, hoping they don't point a gun at you. Now think about the stress for an EMT, an emergency medical technician, out on an ambulance, trying to beat the clock to get that patient with the heart attack to the hospital, or entering the home of a healthy man who's now gasping for breath from COVID-19, hoping that the EMT doesn't get the COVID and bring it home to his own family. Now think about Detective John Mick. He's a detective for the Lower Merion Police Department. And if that weren't enough, he's the deputy chief of Narberth Ambulance, which covers five townships and serves 11,000 patients a year. Let me emphasize 22 years on the police force, 25 years mostly volunteer at the Narberth Ambulance with an average of 20 hours a week outside his day job. Talk about frontline, this is frontline squared. And as a true leader, he worries about the stress of COVID on his staff. This is unlike anything they've ever seen before. And they're moving at least four to five cases of COVID per day. But he said, what's really hard to see is the elderly faces in nursing homes. Sad, lonely, confused, no visitors allowed, watching their friends leave on stretchers, wondering if they'll be next. This is a man of compassion, who has earned the respect and admiration of his fellow officers, including Officer Matthew Friend, we like to call him Officer Friendly, who nominated Detective Mech. And of course, he turns the spotlight on his colleague and mentor, who also serves double duty, Superintendent of Radnor Police Department, Chris Flanagan, who is also Chief of Norbeth Ambulance, with 35 years to credit on both fronts. We thank these brave men for keeping us safe as police officers, but also as emergency medical staff. This week's real champions, Detective John Mick and Superintendent Chris Flanagan. So friends, the next time you get pulled over by a police officer for going a little too fast or zipping through an orange light that's yellow with a little red, don't get snarky. Say thank you because Perhaps that police officer just saved your life. If you'd like to help these brave men and women do their jobs and help buy masks, gloves, and gowns that are really needed, visit narberthambulance.org. And if you care to donate, it's right there. Join us next week when we'll have Dr. Gerard Kreiner. He is professor and director of the Temple Lung Center in Philadelphia. And if you need help with food, remember... The Department of Health, City of Philadelphia, the website, phila.gov, with very important information about COVID testing and where you can get help if you need food. Also, nutritionaldevelopmentservices.org. Please hang your American flag to support COVID patients and all the workers who serve us. us. And send a photo of the flag in front of your home to info at yourradiodoctor.com. We'll post it on our website. And please think about sending us stories about your real champions. And if you can, donate blood to the Red Cross. Wear your mask, wash your hands six feet apart. You can make a difference. Your health is your wealth.
1: Great job. Bye. Uh, Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie on a uh, on your Radio Doctor live on this Sunday morning. We thank everybody for tuning in for the full 1 hour. Remember Your Radio Doctor is exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you missed any of the fascinating interview today with Dr. Ian Frank, you can go to radio you can go to yourradiodoctor.com or you can simply go to radio.com and search your radio doctor. That's going to do it for Dr. Mary Ann on this Sunday. We thank you again for joining on behalf of all of our listeners around the Delaware Valley and all of those champions. I'm Joe Krause. See you next time, everybody. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Mary Ann Ritchie, a Jacob Media production.